Welcome to Here for Her Health, where we are building a better, healthier everyday for women. Brought to you by Organon. Welcome back to Organon's Here for Her Health, where we're building a better and healthier everyday for every woman. I'm your host, Wendy Lund, and today on the show, I sit down with Dr. Alice Sang, principal of Rhea Ventures. Throughout her career, she's championed the cause of women's health around the globe. From early on, she's worked with organizations like Engender Health and Marie Stopes International to improve lives and improve reproductive health for women in Asia and East Africa. She also had an amazing career focused on the women's health sector at McKinsey. Today, she's working with Rhea Ventures to transform the traditionally unjust markets of sexual, reproductive, and maternal health into new and innovative markets that provide equitable, high-quality healthcare to all women. Alice is with us today to discuss how women's health is transforming, and I can't wait to hear what she has to say. Alice, it's great to see you, and we're absolutely thrilled to have you on our podcast here for health. And wanted to just start by just, you know, hearing some background, you know, your journey to women's health, why you're so committed to the space, just to hear a little bit more background on you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so excited to be speaking with you, having known you for some time, and also just to see Organon making such a wonderful impact on the space. So, so thanks. Yeah, in terms of my interest in women's health, it's really been quite longstanding. I started out my career in global public health, and I worked with women in villages and other underserved settings in East Africa and Asia. So I started out very much on the public health side of women's health. Then I went into clinical medicine, where I was really interested in becoming an OBGYN. Did a lot of rotations in different subspecialties within that and was really you know, wanting to make an impact clinically. But at the same time, I knew that there was much more that could be done at the intersection of business, medicine, and public health, having all that together. That led me to pursue an MBA where I you know, really saw the wider world of potential of there's so much that you can do from the business perspective. So I ended up doing a one-year residency did not ultimately pursue a full clinical path and joined McKinsey, where I was for about five years, working with a variety of organizations from hospitals to pharma companies to global health players with really strong themes there on innovation and particularly in women's health. So it's been such an exciting journey seeing the space from different perspectives, from global health to the clinical perspective to our companies and investors thinking about things. I've also been a patient myself as well and experienced many of the clinical areas I did rotations in. I ended up on the other side, which was just such a surreal experience. And now I'm with Rhea Ventures. We are a impact forward women's health venture capital fund. And so it's been kind of fun to really make that transition from different wearing different hats and now as an investor and a general enthusiast in the space. Your background is so incredible from the medical side to the public health side to the business side. I'm really looking forward to talking a little bit more with you about innovation, especially in your current role. Talk to us a little bit about the state of the union and innovation. What's happening in women's health care? Do you feel like innovation in women's health is being embraced? How is it being driven? How is it being invested in? 
Yeah. Yeah. Great question. And something I think about a lot. From my time at McKinsey, it was really great to work with large corporations that are thinking about the space. Now, what I love as an investor is that I get to get really close to innovation. I talk to entrepreneurs, you know, multiple every day. And it's been fun, again, seeing things from the high level as well as the ground up, you know, what's actually happening. I would actually start with a definition of women's health. I think about it along two axes. You know, one is what are the conditions within women's health? And, and I want to bring this up because we see innovation in more in some areas and than others. The other is what is a solution type or what sector are we thinking about? So on the condition side, you know, there's conditions that affect women exclusively, so often related to our reproductive organs and also our life stages like fertility, maternal health, et cetera. There are also conditions that affect women disproportionately like autoimmune disease, as well as affect women differently, such as cardiac disease. And oftentimes when we think about where the innovation is a lot, it's often concentrated in the reproductive journey. We don't see as much in some of the latter areas. The other way to look at it is in type of solution. So, you know, femtech has been booming quite a bit recently. There's been tons of press and a lot of high valuations and a lot of femtech is more on the digital side. Other areas to think about for innovation might be around diagnostics, devices, therapeutics, and even health service delivery. Are we doing something different there? So when I think about all of that in combination, I would say there's a couple of interesting trends. In general, as you and many of the listeners already know, women's health is an underserved area. It is an area that has not seen as much innovation historically as others, such as oncology and Oncology is actually a really good comparator where you know we've really advanced our understanding biologically. There's a lot of new targets to develop therapeutics against, and there's a lot of new life sciences being applied. So women's health, if we think about it from that perspective, has not advanced as much. And so, you know, I think things are starting to change, especially you know, as an investor, I'm seeing earlier stage of innovations that are still in the lab, still in stealth mode, and I'm starting to see some interesting, you know, again, these new life science tools being applied to women's health. But I think that we're very much at the beginning. There's a much longer way to go. It's very exciting to see the change, but there's quite a bit more that could be done. I'll just add like on the tech side. So, you know, we've all been hearing the word femtech and that actually I would say is where there has been a bit more innovation that, you know, has reached the market or just closer to that. Now, these are you know, digital solutions, either solely digital, an app or digital therapeutic to digital plus you know, actual hardware, like maybe a connected device, whether it's for hands-free breast pumping or pelvic floor training. That's definitely been growing a ton, and especially in the last three to five years. And it's been really exciting to see that. Yeah, I mean, I think your points are really, really well taken because, you know, having worked in women's health my whole life, the change and the innovation is so incremental and we need to get into a focus where it's much more long-term the way we look at this, you know, what is it going to look like five years, 10 years out in taking these conditions and diseases very seriously and the impact that they have, not just on women, but on society, on their families, on our financial systems, et cetera. So, you know, it's just wonderful to have people like you who are, you know, focusing on this and trying to drive greater, longer-term innovation because it's not going to just take one company or even one country, it's going to take an entire ecosystem to change. So the more people we have like yourself, the more we're going to be able to create this kind of ecosystem where we start to see change. And I think 
that kind of moves into the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is, you know, you're on the front lines right now of seeing the most meaningful investments in women's health innovation, and yet only a very small percentage of total clinical assets in development, four to 6%, considering the population is 50% or 51%, actually address women's health needs and only 25% of clinical trials report gender-specific results. So the question is, and you started to touch on this, what's the underlying seemingly institutionalized shortfall here? What's the root of this problem? Yeah, those are two really, you know, enlightening statistics and something, you know, really important for context setting about why we're here and also why you're doing what you're doing. And we can start with just breaking it down first. You know, what does each really refer to and what does it mean? So the first one that you mentioned is that four to six percent of clinical stage assets are in women's health. So let's just break that down. So what that really was referring to, and, and this is, you know, we actually had done some of this research when I was still with McKinsey looking at the landscape. That refers to female-specific conditions. So again, some might say, well, women's health is also autoimmune or women's health is also cardiovascular. And and yes, for this specific analysis, it was focused on female-specific conditions, so gynecological conditions, maternal health, menopause, et cetera. And what do we mean by clinical stage assets? So that refers to pharmaceutical assets that are in development, so they're in clinical trials. And we looked at, you know, how many are there total? And if we split it into different disease areas, what does that look like? So indeed, it's a not a high percent for women's health. And when you look at the 46%, most of it's actually in women's cancers, like breast cancer and other cancers. And, and actually is mostly breast cancer, which is, I would say, a success story if there is one within women's health where there has been a lot of investment, a lot of awareness, and some great strides that have been made. So why is that? So there's a couple different ways to think about it. Well, in order to have a drug in development, you need something to target for that drug. So do we have the scientific understanding and new biology and targets essentially in women's health? And the answer is not really. It's, it's not, again, it's not an area that has received a lot of attention and investment in that regard. You know, if we look at NIH funding, for example, you know, there is a lot of effort around women's health overall, you know, including women in clinical trials and conditions that affect women. But if we look at the specific slivers related to women's conditions, it is actually not as high either. It's also kind of in the, the low single digit percent. We need more basic biological understanding of women's conditions in order to develop more drugs and other devices and therapeutics for that. On the other hand, when a company is thinking about where to invest and what drugs to take into clinical trials, they're also thinking about what is the commercial potential. And so in that regard, you know, oncology is a really great comparison where new drugs for cancers are generally covered and even at very high prices without big impact on mortality rates. And Women's health, on the other hand, is not an area that has had a lot of new branded products. And so, you know, physicians are not necessarily used to dealing with the type of paperwork that comes with new branded drugs. So that makes it a challenge as well. So you did a lot of talking and, you know, it's interesting, you brought up oncology and I started to think about that myself when you first started to talk, because in the early part of my career, there was very little hope for many of the cancers that today are, you know, in very chronic areas and including more of those female cancers where there has been a lot of great 
strides and thank God, a lot of great movement. So talking about the historical gaps is one thing, but what about the drivers to those gaps? You know, what is it about today's landscape that still tips the scale towards invention that benefits men? And again, I do think things are starting to change. You know, the fact that we're having this conversation, that there are other conversations happening is very exciting. It's, it's almost like, you know, where we are today with women's health, starting to apply new science and have new understanding is where we were, you know, maybe a few decades ago or a decade ago for some other disease areas. So I think things are starting to change. If I think about what still tips the scale, I would think about, well, who's in the seat at those different stages? Who is doing research? So if I'm a PhD student and I'm thinking about where do I want to focus my energies, I might look towards what are the big name researchers today doing, who I can mentor, you know, apprentice with, where is their funding, you know, what's going to create an exciting career for me. And oftentimes, unsurprisingly, you know, folks might think more about problems that affect their own demographic. In fact, there was an interesting paper that was published early this year by a professor from HBS and some other collaborators looking at who is inventing and getting patents and who are they inventing for. So in this research, they found that women-led teams tended to invent for women's problems as much as they did for men's problems, whereas male teams actually were inventing more for male problems and not so much for the women's issues. So then if you take that in combination with the fact that something like 13% of inventors are women, then you start to see why there's a disproportionate amount of inventions that are targeting men's issues. And then if you fast forward also to who is starting companies, who is getting funding for those companies, and you play that all out, and we know that there is definitely gender bias at each of those steps. And so how can we be more inclusive across the value chain at each of those? I think that could make a difference. Research is really, really interesting. And I agree with you that the more people that hear about it, focus on it, it does become more and more and more of a movement Mm -hmm. for people to want to expand. So we need to keep that noise level high, Alice. Yeah. So the other statistic that you mentioned is that 25% of clinical trials report gender-specific results. So why is that something important to talk about? Well, the earlier conversation was all about, you know, what are we doing for female-specific conditions? But now let's just take a huge step back and think about healthcare in general. So there's been a lot of interesting dialogue recently, especially from books such as Invisible Women, about gender bias in general in healthcare. And I have to admit, as a trained physician, I never thought about this. This was not part of my curriculum. And I just took it for granted that anatomy diagrams are always male, unless you're talking about reproduction. And that's not something that occurred to me, but actually our bodies are different at the molecular level. Like literally every cell has a sex. And so the fact that we really use male physiology as default does a disservice to women. So you know, why is it important then to talk about female representation and sex-specific analysis in trials is because our biology is different. There is a period of time from the 70s to the 90s where women were not included in clinical trials. It started out with good intentions. There was a drug that was causing birth defects, and then the space and FDA realized, well, we, we don't want to subject women and their fetuses to that. But then it went a bit far because then all women, not just pregnant women, were then not included in trials. So what that means is when drugs were being tested for efficacy and for safety, it was not done so with women. 
So we've made a lot of great strides since then. Male physiology is, or there's recognition that, you know, female physiology is actually different and important to think about and include. And the NIH and FDA have really taken strides to make sure there's more inclusion. So the next question I would ask then is, well, are we using, you know, are we studying results differently by sex to really make sure that we are testing appropriately in men and women. And so there's been some strides, but there are still some ways to go there as well. It's so fascinating. Everything you're talking about, just so many amazing facts and so many of the things that you had epiphanies about through your career as you kind of went through being a physician and then onto the many different things you've done. One of the things we spent a lot of time talking about this week at Organon was menopause. And we saw a lot out there in the stratosphere on all these social channels on, you know, menopause, women need to be unmuted. This is a stigma. People are not talking about this. And, you know, the question is like, how did we get here? And how do we change the situation so people recognize that the health burden of menopause, but also other so-called silent conditions deserve and need these kind of underpinnings of data and discussion that women experience. Yeah. And I love that you're talking about menopause within Organon and there's just a lot of conversation in general happening out there. It's amazing. When we talked about women's health becoming destigmatized a couple of years ago with the rise of femtech and other movements, menopause wasn't part of that. And I actually called menopause a white space within a white space, <laughs> right? That destigmatization started with, okay, let's talk about fertility. Let's talk about maternal health issues and everything around reproduction. And it wasn't about older women or the end of your reproductive journey. So it's amazing that that's really coming into the conversation. And some might say, well, menopause is not, it's not a disease. It's a life stage. Okay. Yes, that is true. But hot flashes, which we would call vasomotor symptoms that has a real impact on quality of life. It has economic burden affecting, you know, women in the workplace. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned femtech and I think that's something else we could dig in a little further on because obviously it's a hot topic and on kind of the tips of everyone's tongue. And you've been a huge champion in the area of femtech and the role in disrupting women's health. What do you see as the most current, active, and promising trends in femtech? Maybe even a little more definition around this for people who might be listening and like learning. And what impact do you see this having on transforming women's health? Yeah, absolutely. Femtech is such a great word and a, and a movement in many ways. It elevates the conversation on women's health. It helps the innovators and enthusiasts and investors find each other when you have something that is catchy and can really kind of hold on to that. I will say recent dialogue in the space has been a more of a, a love-hate relationship. We all love it because, again, it helps bring folks together. There are others who don't like it for different reasons. And I would also say that the definition has definitely been shifting. And if you ask different folks, you'll get different answers. The way that I think about femtech, if we go back to the original, the map we talked about earlier about what is women's health, to me, it's about digital solutions digitally oriented. So there might be a physical component, but there is some kind of tech or something digital, and it's often more consumer facing. So to me, femtech is about disrupting women's health in a way that puts the consumer and the woman at the center, makes care more convenient, empowers her to take matters into her own hands. That's how I think about it. You know, to me, it's less about the deep life sciences 
like the diagnostics and devices and drugs, but more about these kind of more consumer-oriented solutions. Of course, there's overlap. There's new diagnostics that become direct-to-consumer, which straddles both. And there are some in the space that define femtech just basically as all of women's health. But however you define it, I think it's really exciting that it's really taken hold. The types of trends, I would say, you know, one is a lot of it started around fertility you know, solutions, period tracking, maternal health solutions. And we're starting to see more that are addressing other parts of the reproductive journey, including the end of the journey with you know, menopause-oriented solutions, as well as let's look beyond reproductive health and even look beyond female-specific conditions. You know, Just recently, I've been talking to companies that are thinking about autoimmune disease and is there some sort of digital platform that can support patients, manage their condition, also access care. That's really exciting. Another trend I would say that seems to be coming to play is around companies that might start in one area, like starting in prenatal care or starting infertility and moving up and down the spectrum. So, you know, going upstream into fertility, going downstream into postpartum care. We even see some that are, again, dressing areas beyond that. So it's an interesting tension. If you develop a solution for a specific use case, you will get really good at that. At the same time, women probably don't want multiple things. So it's good to then think about stringing it all together. But then are you going to be the best at that specific use case? Yeah, everything you've pointed to just talks about what a unique time we're in. And my hope is for my own daughter that, you know, we look back 10, 15 years from now and a lot of the things we see and feel over the last 20, 25 years are a thing of the past. And we can really look forward to a future of innovation and change and embracing what women need for the long term. And so, you know, my question that I have for you kind of to close this is what needs to really be done to seize upon the momentum we're right now seeing in the space to scale more for innovation for women? And what role do different ecosystem players have in that? Why does RIA exist? What role does Organon have to play? And what about some of the others? Yeah, absolutely. And what I love about women's health and this innovation landscape is that it's it's a pretty tight-knit community. It's also highly, highly collaborative yes, <laughs> between agreed. entrepreneurs, between investors, yep. and between those different groups. I just, I love that. I think we're all working towards the same goal. And yeah, there's definitely such an important role that all stakeholders can play. For folks like Organon, again, so happy that you're here in the space and really advocating for women's health. It's really important for large companies to be here that can scale innovations that also are acquirers of innovation. As investors, it's important for us to be able to find exits. And there's more and more now, which is exciting. But as we have more you know, large players in the space, really investing in innovation, acquiring innovation, that makes a big difference for everyone, for investors who feel confident making those investments. And it's great for the entrepreneurs as well. And in terms of the investment piece of the part of the ecosystem, it's been exciting for me also to see that there are a handful of women's health specialized funds that are popping up, including Rear Ventures. It's also great to see that there are mainstream funds that are starting to spend time in this space and even have dedicated folks looking at that vertical. Again, you know, we need capital to be allocated both from the deep players like ourselves as well as others. Why does Rhea exist? 
Rhea is very much focused on underserved areas within women's health. And we are looking at areas such as contraception, maternal health, and other reproductive health conditions, as well as outside of that. And what I would say is differentiating for us is that we also are very focused on underserved populations. In addition to looking for technologies that are transformative, We specifically look for ones that can benefit women who might be of low income, maybe covered by Medicaid or uninsured minority populations and such. And that actually is another trend, I will say, with femtech and other innovations is many of them start out direct-to-consumer might be for a higher income demographic just based on the price point. And at Rhea Ventures, we really want to make sure we're spurring innovation for all. If you look at our portfolio companies, There are a number of them that are thinking about access to care or reducing health disparities. That's really exciting. And for the other players in the ecosystem as well, there's a role to be played by researchers to be thinking about women's health conditions and investing time there for grant makers, for other organizations, again, that are either doing or funding the research. It's important for everyone to be thinking about women's health. Now, one of the things that someone said two days ago that I just loved is that we used to talk about how it takes a village, but in essence, we're going to need to build that village. And when you talk about all the players, when it comes to an organ- a company like yourself or a company like Organon and all these other players who come into it, we're going to have to collaborate, as you said, to really build this ecosystem and focus forward and build a new future for women in their health. So I just want to say, Alice, thank you. I love the fact that we got to reconnect. Thank you so much again for all that you're doing. And yes, we'd love to continue the conversation. I would too. I want to thank Dr. Zhang for joining us on the show today and discussing the aspects of innovation within women's health that are giving us reason to be hopeful. Be sure to hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts so that you never miss an episode. I'm Wendy Lund, and thank you all for listening to Organon's Here For Her Health, building a better and healthier every day for every woman. Music